one of the ways that we read the book of Ecclesiastes is by recognising the two voices, the narrator who introduces the teacher, Gehelet, uh, who we find uh, introduced to us um, after kind of verse 11 in uh, the, the first chapter. But then we read it through the prism of the narrator's summary of the, the teacher's work and then particularly the last two verses of chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, that the sum of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments because God sees, knows, cares and will bring everything into judgment. Uh, we saw last week that that would be uh, for us to read this book through the words of the Lord Jesus. So let me pray before we have a look at this passage, a couple of famous uh, words in here from Ecclesiastes as well. Uh, and then we're going to open up this word and see what the teacher has observed about the world that we live in, but then also hear what the Lord Jesus has to say to us as a word of hope. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God and that your word reveals to us truths about the world we live in, but also truths about who you are and your character and especially the life and hope to be found in Jesus. Father, we pray that as we look at this uh, little section of Ecclesiastes, that you'd help us to identify with what the teacher says, but then also to realise how Jesus gives meaning to a toilsome life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ignorance is bliss. Right? Isn't that the truth? Can I, can I hear an amen at home? And here, amen, that's right. Ignorance is bliss. Uh, When I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, I lived like a child without a care in the world. Food, well, that's for energy. Energy, that's for play. Play, that's for fun. Fun, well, that uses energy. Energy comes from food. You eat, play, eat, play, and then sleep, and then just do it all again the next day. Right? So many mysteries about the world when you're a kid that you don't even have to think about. Right? Clothes, they get dirty, but then they magically become clean again. You just open your drawer and then they are folded. Clean clothes. Uh, you need food. Where do you find that? Well, you just open up the cupboard. You, you just stare there for hours even and you, you'll find food and when it gets empty, the next week it just magically fills back up again. And of course, money. Well, where does money come from? That's just that little plastic card, right? If you want money, just use this. Just endless money off that plastic card. But soon enough, as you start to grow, you start to want more than the simplicity of uh, what that life offers. And the new motto of your life becomes something like, if only. If if only I had a new toy, a new bike, a new gaming console. If only I had a new job or my own money. If only I had a better job and more money. If only I had my own car. If only I had that car over there. If only I had my own place. If only I could buy my own place in Sydney, no less. If only we can just get out of lockdown. Then, well then what? Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be free. Then I'll find meaning. Then life will be fine. Then what? Well then I'll find a new if only. Because you soon discover that each if only just seems to lead you down a dead-end road with yet more if-onlys to dream about. And the things that we own end up owning us, and the things that promised freedom seem to just deliver us into a new slavery that we need to be freed from. 
Right? The, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Cahelet, would agree that ignorance is bliss. Right? You don't want to stare too long or too hard down that road, down that dead-end road of if-onlys. Why? Well, because like him, you'll discover that life is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind, it just round and round it goes and never ends. No amount of wealth or pleasure will satisfy. No, it's just better to resign yourself to finding satisfaction in what you have here and now. Right? This is Kohelet's conclusion each time he asks three main questions that we have in the passage before us. Question one, you'll see it there in chapter 2, verse 22. The teacher asks, what do people get from all their toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? The answer, nothing. Therefore, the teacher resigns himself to just the next best thing. Verse 24, people can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Uh, the second question he asks in chapter 3, verse 9, he asks, what do workers gain from all their toil? The answer, there is no gain. So again, he resigns himself to the, the second best option. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. And the third question he asks, in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, he asks, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? His answer, well, no one knows. Right? Who, who can tell? No one can tell or answer that question. So, in hopeless resignation, he concludes, chapter 3, verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better for people than to enjoy their work. Why? Well, because that's your lot. That kind of fatalistic resignation. Now, I, I think there is wisdom in what the teacher says here. There is wisdom in this kind of contentment and joy with just what you have before us, to, to just live in the moment. But I don't think the teacher is really giving a, a positive endorsement here to love life and, and seize the day, carpe diem, right? as if that's where meaning in life is to be found. No, it's because there is nothing more than this. There is no meaning, there is no reason, there is no, no rhyme to it, there's no certainty, there's no path that leads to anything better. So don't aspire, don't go chasing your dreams, don't go chasing waterfalls, don't think if only. Instead, resign yourself to just finding pleasure in your toil. That's your lot. See, I think this is actually a statement of defeat rather than a statement of enthusiasm. It's more a, a statement of hopeless disappointment than an encouragement to find happiness in the moment. Because the teacher reflects on his journey to find meaning, which he, which he started back in chapter 1, and he concludes three things in this section. These are the three points of the sermon this morning. He concludes that one, toil is spoiled, two... God is odd, and three, eternity is uncertainty. And yes, I did work hard to make those rhyme. 
So let's hear the first words of the teacher as he reflects on toil and work. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. Let me read the teacher's words again for us. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Now this too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labour under the sun, for people may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all that they own to others who have not toiled for it. Now this too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Now what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. Now this too is meaningless. People can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, the one who He's not pleased with, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who then pleases God. This this too, though, is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. You see how all toil and work is spoiled for the teacher. Why? Well, because life's too short to enjoy the fruit of your labour. All the years of blood, sweat and tears, all, all the sleep that you lose thinking about that problem at work that needs to be solved, that assignment that is due next week, building your little kingdom, paying off the house, taking your responsibilities and then you die. So basically, you work your whole life to get your piece of paper, to get your house, to get all your stuff, and then someone else enjoys the fruit of your labour. And you don't even know if the person who inherits what you've earned will be wise or foolish. So the teacher says, this is meaningless and a great misfortune. Now, all you can do is hope and pray that God allows you to, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil while you're still alive. Verse 25, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To one he gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, and to another, well, he takes it away. And and rather than take comfort in God's fair judgment to reward the good and punish the bad, the teacher is only more frustrated with God's right to give and to take as he pleases. Because who knows what God is pleased to do with your toil? Maybe he'll let you enjoy it. Or maybe he'll just give it to someone else. Your only choice, the only thing that you can control is to resign yourself and just make do with what you've got. Now you might be happy or you might not. But either way, it's all meaningless and a chasing after the wind. And maybe you're someone who's frustrated with the outcome of your toil. Right? What, what are you toiling for every single day? Where's it all leading? Maybe that's a great frustration for you. And you can really identify with the teacher's despair here. The depressing observations and sombre conclusions of Kehelet throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes always lead down this road. But remember, remember from last week, 
You don't have to resign yourself to the teacher's point of view, as true as his observations may be. Because the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to make us face the hard facts of life under the sun, to not live in the blissful ignorance that we so often turn to. He forces us to look elsewhere for life and for hope. He forces us to lift our eyes above the sun, indeed to look to the sun, the Lord Jesus, as a way to be wise, as a way to fear God and keep his commandments. Because Jesus does provide another way for you and for me to view all our toilsome labour. Now, he illustrates it, in fact, with a really great parable in Luke's Gospel. This is a, a parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, one that perhaps you're familiar with. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right? To divide the inheritance that our father, our parents have toiled their whole life for, we want to share that. Well, help us to divide it properly. Verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Isn't that the truth? We've heard the teacher say the same things. And then Jesus told them this parable. So the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Right? Just enjoy the fruits of your toil here and now. But God said to him, you fool. Now, this very night, your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Now, I hope that you noticed that this is striking how this parable deals with exactly the teacher's concerns in Ecclesiastes. Right, the teacher is concerned with his inheritance and the short time that he has to enjoy his tile, toil. Likewise, Jesus tells this parable on the topic of inheritance, about a rich man who doesn't live long enough to enjoy his toil. And what is the conclusion? Jesus says, don't just sit back and eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil. Right, life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions, don't be rich towards yourself. Instead, be rich towards God. And what does that mean? Well, a little bit further on in the same chapter, Jesus explains, Luke chapter 12, verse 29. He says, Do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs, uh, runs after all such things and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And don't be afraid that God has the right to give and take as he pleases, what seems to be at random. For Jesus says, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, 
Go give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't be like the rich fool who decided to use his wealth to help himself. Jesus says, use your wealth to help and serve others. Now this is how Jesus answers the teacher's despair that all toil is spoiled and we should heed the lesson. Jesus teaches that whether we enjoy our toil, our labour or not, there is meaning in our toil when we use it to serve God by serving others. And so here's the hard question. What is all your toilsome labour for? What is the point of all the effort and diligence you pour out each day? The nine to five, or perhaps more likely the eight till seven. The endless meetings, the reports, the study, the exhausting pursuit of happiness. What's the point and the purpose of all that? I, I get it. Right? Maybe it's all you can do to really just find some purpose and some distraction from the cold, hard facts of life under the harsh, hot sun. And so maybe you have just resigned yourself to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil, those little things each day. Maybe that's just the best you can do. But please don't settle for a menial existence when Jesus offers so much more than this. When instead of storing up for yourself treasures that rust and fade and rot and decay, you could be storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. Now, you may prefer to live with your head in the sand, but actually the words of Jesus, this is the only way you can altogether avoid the teacher's disappointment with toil. So let's turn our attention to hear the words of the teacher as he reflects on God's timing. Here's our second point, God is odd. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful or appropriate for its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart and yet no one can fathom what God is doing or has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil, this is truly the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. 
Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account, or he'll call back the past again and again. Now, I think this is probably the most famous part of Ecclesiastes, the teacher's poem on time. And we have a a little children's book at home that I think Evie got for Christmas when she was maybe three, four years old. Uh, And it's based on this poem. It's called A Time for Everything. It's a cute little children's book. And it starts off with this lovely and cheerful saying. It says, life is wonderful and there is a time for everything. I would have brought it in this morning for this sermon, but I think it must be a time for losing things because I couldn't find it. Um, But it's got these lovely little illustrations and it says, you know, there's a time to get dirty and there's a time to have a bath. There's a time for sunshine, there's a time for rain, you know, jumping in muddy puddles. There's a time for playing games and there's also a time for bed. And it all sounds lovely and joyful and poetic. But in the teacher's mind, in the context of Ecclesiastes, I, I don't think this really is a joyful poem. I think actually this is a poem of frustration, right? The teacher wouldn't say, life is wonderful and there's a time for everything. He would say, life is terrible because there is a time for everything. The problem is that everything lovely has an opposite. There is all these good things in life, but then they're all matched by evil things as well. And I noticed that the version of the children's book that we should have at home somewhere conveniently left out, there's a time to kill. That makes it a bit hard for a children's book, I guess. And perhaps an even more modern version could have added in things like, there's a time to be free and a time to be locked down. Or there's a time to make money and then there's a time to be bankrupt and lose everything. There's a time to sunbake. There's a time to get skin cancer. There's a time to be safe. There's a time to be abused. Now, that doesn't sound so cheerful anymore, does it? Uh, And I'm sorry to ruin the poem, especially for you Pete Seeger fans out there. You see, this is the problem for the teacher. The problem is, there is a time for all these things, for good and for evil, and even though God is in control of everything and He's given us a sense of time, chapter 3, verse 11, He has set eternity in the human heart, No one can fathom that eternity. No one can fathom what God is doing. No one knows His plans and no one knows what time is coming for them. Is it now going to be my time to weep or my time to laugh? Is it going to be my time to tear down or my time to build? Is it my time to start a business or to close a business? See, God is odd. He's unfathomable and who can know the mind of the Lord? Nobody under the sun is able to know God's timing. He just goes on doing what he's doing. Chapter 3, verse 14, nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. You have no control. And verse 15, God will just go on making the same things happen over and over and over again. So what can you do, says the teacher? Well, verse 12, I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. 
if he gives it to you. So your only choice really is just to make do with what you've got here in front of you. And who knows? It might be your time to mourn or it might be your time to dance. But either way, it's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And maybe you're someone who is frustrated with God's timing. Frustrated that his plans haven't worked out to your plans. Frustrated that you don't know the exact timing of what will happen. What's, what's the crystal ball say about this next year that's coming up in, in 2022? And you share the teacher's deep despair. Right? This is the teacher's depressing conclusion, but again, the gospel of Jesus provides for us another view. And this is where I think it's helpful for us to return again to that parable of Jesus uh, in Luke chapter 12. Because the rich, the rich fool didn't know what the time was. Right? He thought it was a time for tearing down and then building bigger barns, a time to, to cash in and buy that house looking over the harbour right, that he had saved and worked for his whole life. But really, it was the time for being generous with his wealth. And the rich fool, well, he thought it was the time to kick back and just enjoy his toil. But actually, it was the time for him to die. And really, he should have known better. He should have known the time. Right? He might not have known God's specific timing for his life, but he should have known God's values. He should have known God's commands. He should have known God's word and been living under that. He should have known at least the two great commands that God gave to his people, even before Jesus. Right, the command to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Instead of being busy toiling for himself, he should have been busy toiling for God and for his neighbour. And Jesus again illustrates the point with another parable in Luke chapter 12. Further down at verse 42 to 46, Jesus asks, who is the faithful and wise manager that the master puts in charge of his servants while he goes away? Right, the wise and faithful servant is the one who doesn't know when, he doesn't know at what time his master will return, but he gets busy doing his job properly anyway, living under his, uh, under his master's command, under his word, living by his values, what he's been given to do. Jesus says the servant who doesn't know when his master is going to return, doesn't know the time, and behaves badly, he beats the other servants and eats and drinks and gets drunk, well, he'll be cut into pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers when the master returns at an hour that he doesn't expect. This is how Jesus answers the teacher's despair that, that God is odd and unfathomable and that we don't know the time. And I think we should heed the lesson. Right? Jesus teaches us that whether we know God's timing or not, there is meaning in our toil when all our work and our priorities and our deeds are shaped by the master that we serve. While we live and breathe in eager expectation for the Lord Jesus to return, to set this upside down world the right way up. And so here's the hard question. What shapes your work? and your priorities, and your deeds? I guess the question really is, what are you living for? What is the point of all this? Where is it all heading? 
Have you just resigned yourself to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil? To amass for yourself things here and now, pleasures for you to enjoy? Or are you serving Jesus as the Lord of your life? The Lord of your things? The Lord of your priorities who holds your very life in His hands? And who will return at any time to judge the living and the dead? This is how you avoid the teacher's disappointment with God's timing. And so let's hear the words of the teacher as he reflects on justice and the afterlife. So here's our third point, eternity is uncertainty. Chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for human beings, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath or spirit. Humans have no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. I mean, who knows if the human spirit rises upward or if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better for people than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So the teacher observes that the world is full of corruption. I guess we know this to be true as well. That's why we have the ICAC, the ICAC, right? Um, It exposes some of the corruption, mostly, that we have within our political systems. But what do we do then with the rest of the corrupt world, with all the corruption that goes unchecked and unpunished? You know, where do we find comfort then? Where do you look for justice then? The teacher knows that God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked and he'll set everything straight. But that's cold comfort for the teacher. Because the world just seems as corrupt as, as it has ever been. So if there's no justice now, then who knows if there'll be any justice after you die. Maybe, in fact, there is no life after death. Maybe you just go back down to the ground like the animals. So maybe there's no justice at all. Maybe we're just like them. We all come from dust and we all end up as dust. And how can anyone know for sure whether the human spirit rises to heaven or if the animal spirit sinks down into the earth? You know, there's no advantage for being human. Your only choice is this, to just make do with what you've got here and now right in front of you. I mean, who knows? When you die, there might be justice, or maybe there's nothing. Either way, it's all meaningless and a chasing after the wind. And I wonder if you're someone who's frustrated by injustice, and you're uncertain about eternity. And maybe you can identify here strongly with the teacher's despair about his depressing conclusion. But again, 
we don't have to resign ourselves to seeing the world this way because Jesus speaks a better word than that of the teacher. This time we turn to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 21 to 30. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent Him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice And they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Are you uncertain of life in the face of death? Are you uncertain, despairing even, that there ever can be or will be justice for the things that you've seen done to others, for the things that have been done to you? Then please hear these sweet and comforting words of the Lord Jesus. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And you will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. See, the teacher asked, who can bring people to see what will happen after them? Jesus can answer that question. He is the only one to die and to come back to life, never to die again. And his resurrection gives his words authority, so please hear them. Right? He is the only one who can give us certainty for life in the face of death. The only one who can guarantee righteous judgment and total justice. Justice for all the terrible things that have happened out there. Justice even for the terrible things that you have done or failed to do. And your life does not end in ashes and dust. Because all people are destined to die once and then face his judgment. But this is the great Christian hope that in believing in the Lord Jesus, we are accounted righteous with him. Right? This is the great Christian hope among all the corruption and injustice of this world that Jesus will judge the living and the dead and all who trust in Jesus will not be judged, but have crossed over from death to life. You see, this is how Jesus answers the teacher's despair 
and maybe your own despair that eternity is uncertainty. And we should heed the lesson. Jesus teaches that whether we see justice now or not, there is meaning in your toil, your toilsome labour under the sun. Because we can be certain that he will bring everything into judgment. And so here's the hard question. Where have you placed your hope? Again, I guess it's that big question, what are you living for? You know, have you resigned yourself to just eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil in the here and now? Or are you praying, come Lord Jesus, come and put things right? You see, this is the only sure way to avoid the teacher's disappointment with injustice. The only way to avoid the teacher's disappointment with life under the sun. It's in Jesus that we find meaning for a toilsome life. So let me pray. Our Father, we do thank you that even as you open our eyes to see and despair at the injustice and the trouble and the disappointment that is everywhere pervasive under the sun in this world, that you have also given us hope, certain and assured hope in the Lord Jesus, who has lived life under the sun, who has even faced death and yet has risen to life eternal, that we might have life in his name, that he might judge injustice and that all those who believe in him may escape their own judgment because, Father, he brings life, he brings righteousness. And so, Father, please help us to find meaning in his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.